0: It probably took me about two or three weeks until I hired my therapist. It was because for me, I tried to fix the problem on my own. I tried what I was taught, you know, not think about it, but it had got to a point where I couldn't not, not think
1: about it. Hello, and welcome to Acting Up, the podcast that dives deep into the world of TV and film that highlights our people, our communities, and our stories. I'm your host, Courtney Wills, entertainment director at The Griot, This week, we're speaking with Reggie Lochar, and we're talking about overcoming the stigma of needing help to manage mental health. We'll also discuss his new film, A for Alpha. I really wanted to talk about festivals because we're gearing up for Tribeca to happen in person in New York. ABFF is happening in Miami in November. There are some really cool screenings happening and really fantastic films that are making the rounds this year. And I kind of wanted to jump into what that looks like as a filmmaker, because of course you all only hear about these filmmakers once people like myself start talking about them because they have a hit. But what happens before the hit? Like what does the journey up to that look like? So I called my friend Reggie, who is a fantastic filmmaker. His Latest project, A for Alpha, has been making the rounds on the festival circuit this year. It has been sparking conversation about gender politics within the Black community specifically. And it was a project that made me look at my own views, you know, and really like my own marriage in a kind of different way. A for Alpha was an official selection at the Toronto Black Film Festival this year, also at the Ottawa Black Film Festival, the Garden State Film Festival, and Cinequest. It also snagged a spot at the Manhattan International Film Festival, which happened later this year, and it will be submitting for ABFF, which goes down in Miami in November. So I wanted to talk to him about that, but it's also Mental Health Month. And I think that it's really important for people to not only care about what these creatives and influencers and stars have to say about their projects, but like, what do they have to say about navigating the ins and outs of just being a human being right now, being Black right now, being awake right now during this really... Tough time. We're still in the pandemic. I know everyone wants to act like it's suddenly over, but it's not. And it's been stressful. You know, I think this was like the saddest Mother's Day for a lot more people than usual because now the world is opening up. Now we are gathering, and at those gatherings, people are missing, you know, that we lost in the pandemic or sadly lost in other ways, whether it was gun violence or through suicide, which rates are at an all time high. It's such an important thing for us to normalize talking about some of the darker sides of our minds and some of the depths that we all can find ourselves in. It's important to normalize what it looks like to get help for that and how to go about getting help for that and how to talk to your family about wanting to get help for that. And Reggie was kind enough to open up about his journey to really managing his mental health in a conversation we had a few days back.
0: With everything that we've been through the last 13 months, more than a year, because, you know, it's we're in April now, about to be in May, we should allow ourselves to have moments of reprieve, moments of like, if this is what I want to eat, if this is what makes me happy, boom, this is what we're going to do, you know, because I think trying to be very rigid and unrealistic in this time is being a little too tough on ourselves.
1: I think so, too. And I mean, we're coming up on Mental Health Awareness Month, which... I think everybody got a crash course in mental health, self-care, experiencing disordered living if they hadn't already, then in some sense through this pandemic. And I think it's just so important that we continue, like you said, to give ourselves grace and figure out like what works for us in terms of boundaries, in terms of what you can take on, what you can do. And it's so important to do that. I know that you're like really fit, right?
0: Like I'm always following your Instagram and you're working out, you're getting other people to work out. I will say this, for me, that's what keeps me going. You know what I mean? I'll be very honest with you, Court. Like, so it happened a few months before the pandemic. I went through a really bad breakup, which is probably the worst time to go through a breakup, right? Yeah. We're filming A for Alpha. We literally filmed it right before the pandemic hit. So then I was so busy that I didn't have an opportunity or a chance to really like process everything so then I did and it all hit me like a crashing wave yeah so I had to find different avenues to work through that and I can honestly say I picked up therapy I got a therapist last Mm. May because I was going through some things that I really just couldn't handle on my own anymore and prayer helps prayer helps but I needed more than just prayer if that makes sense
1: yeah How did you find a therapist?
0: I asked around, to be honest with you. I asked around, I did a little bit of research and I found this guy. He's not super young. His name is Lawrence. He's like in his late thirties, I guess early forties now, Mm -hmm. it's been a year. And we never met in person. All our sessions have been over the phone, via Zoom, Mm -hmm. but still provided the benefit that I needed or I was looking for. So on top of my fitness, those were tools that I use to help make it through this pandemic. And honestly, Corey, ever since then, I've been a big advocate for like therapy, because honestly, my parents, they're from the Caribbean island. So like therapy was not something that I grew up on. I did not grow up thinking, okay, this was okay. This this was our norm.
1: Yeah, like you said, like go to church.
0: Yeah, pray it off, you'll be fine. And no, it got to a point where like, it wasn't, I needed Mm -hmm. more.
1: What do you think gave you permission to do that. Because I can tell you 10 years ago, it would not have been as easy for you to tell me that, tell our listeners that on an interview as it is today, I think we've come a really long way really fast in terms of normalizing and awareness and talking about the stuff. It's okay to have a therapist. It's okay to have a mental illness. It's okay to take medication. It's okay to not take medication, all of those things. But I don't see like a whole lot of real talk on what that might actually look like. Like you said, you grew up in a house where therapy was like not even a thing. So what does it actually look like to contend with that when you find yourself struggling? Or like you said, you really were pursuing your fitness because it makes you feel better. You needed some help, so you got a therapist. But for some people, being depressed at least, which is something that I've experienced and I constantly struggle with, you know, when I'm really depressed, I don't do the things that I know are good for me. When I'm really depressed, when I'm probably the most in need is when I'm not texting the therapist back to make an appointment or I'm not getting up and going on those morning walks that I know make me feel great and that I know are good for my body, even though it's right there. It's like, that is That's too, that's too much. What do you think we as a community, whether it's on film, on screen, in our conversations like these, how do we normalize that part? The part that it's not just be okay with therapy and take your vitamins and work out. Like what about when you're in it and those things and those tools that we are now thankfully so vocal about are still feeling like really out of reach.
0: Well, for me, I went through a period of like four or five days where like, I just could not get out of bed. You know, everything that you just said, even going for your morning walk, which is right there. It's not like you're going to the gym. It's not like you're you're just going for a morning walk. It should technically be so easy, but it's hard. I knew I needed to do something different and I needed more than just prayer. You know what I mean? I knew that I need to do something different after those four or five days of I mean not getting out of bed. I remember we were in post-production for this project and I would be getting emails from my editor, thoughts on this, thoughts on that. And as a producer on the project, I mean, I wrote the script too. Like, yes, you have your director, but they're all coming to you saying, hey, okay, is this good? What do you think about this? Because even though we're all in our own little bubbled area last spring, God bless WeTransfer and Zoom and, and all these technology that we have these days that we can technically still work remotely. But I just was not in it, court, honestly. And that's when I knew I had to do something different. Something had to yeah. be done. And at the time, I didn't necessarily know what it was. If I had my four or five day period where I couldn't get out of bed, it probably took me about two or three weeks until I hired my therapist. It was because for me, I tried to fix the problem on my own. I tried what I was taught, you know, not think about it, but it had got to a point where I couldn't not, not think about it. You know what I mean? I couldn't go anymore. I couldn't just do, I couldn't just be. So I had to do something. And then that's when I started reaching out for help. And it was a very scary thing for me to do because um, that's not my norm. I'm very much a suffering silence kind of person. And I'm not saying that that's okay to do, but that's just me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it took a lot for me to get out of that. It took a lot for me to, first of all, foremost, reach out to friends, reach out to colleagues and say, Hey, do you guys know anyone? Do you guys have any recommendations? You know, I mean, I have insurance. So like, will they take my insurance? Will it help offset the cost? Things like that. You know, you start doing the research and stuff like that. And then once I got the therapist, we had a preliminary conversation. And then I knew the only way this was going to be beneficial for me and what I was going through was I had to be completely honest. Yeah. That I think is the hardest part because we as people were so guarded. We're so used to bringing things away and dealing with it ourselves or talking to our friends. But sometimes you need that unbiased perspective, totally. you yeah. know? We need someone who's going to tell you, do you think that was the right decision to make? Mm -hmm. That perspective. And it wasn't an immediate thing. It did take like three weeks before I found one, but I had to ask myself, how am I going to get through this? And for me, that was the catalyst. It was those four or five days where I just couldn't get out of bed because that's not me. To your point, I said earlier, I love to work out. I'm always working out. I try to stay fit. And the five days is basically a week and I didn't do anything. Like I couldn't, yeah. it's not that I didn't want to, I couldn't, you know? And now I like to tell people that I go to it because the other thing is, is that when people look at our lives, especially with social media today, they always think you got it all figured out, but sometimes we all deal with certain things, you know? And you have to be honest about sharing that. Cause you don't know who your story might help.
1: Exactly. It's so cool to talk to you in this capacity because. Okay, so for listeners, we'll like fill you in. We kind of just started talking. Reggie and I are friends. We met at a film festival. AFF, a few years ago. A-B-F-F, yes, which is so much fun. It's a mysterious place in Miami. No, it's like this really cool days-long event. It's a huge highlight of my year every year. I get to meet people like Reggie who are incredibly talented writers, producers, directors, filmmakers. And it is a place where... Black folks in the industry can really come together and like support each other and make genuine connections. And it's really cool. And we're going to get more into that about festivals, what happens at festivals a little later in the conversation. But What I was gonna say is it's so cool for me to finally talk to Reggie in this capacity professionally, because I see that what you already do with your art is exactly what you will do when everyone is talking to you about everything that you're working on in the future, whether that's six months or six years from now, it's really cool to see already, like, how you are going to represent yourself. And it's it seems like just as honest as this work that you do. Most recently, A for Alpha is making the rounds in the festival circuit, and it is your second film. Yeah. It's an HBO-sponsored film. We'll get into what that actually means, but it is a really honest look and really kind of unusual depiction of This deep rooted, unspoken gender bias within our own communities, within our own brains, even. And I was like, no shit, I can't believe that is what he tackled. And it is so good. It is so worth watching. Like, why? Why did you make this project?
0: To be honest, I have like a couple scripts that I've written. But I worked on this one because I was at a friend's house a few years ago and you know he had just bought a new house he had just got married so you know newlyweds and we know we're all chilling you know um the the guys are over we're all in the basement he has like this huge 70 inch screen tv down not like down the basement it was nice like his own little man cave his wife comes down and she asks him to kind of just throw her panties and like some stuff into the laundry, nothing major. In my mind, this should have taken less than 10 seconds, you know, where it's it's 2018 at, at that time, throw it in a washer, put some soap in, leave it alone you forget it. An hour later it's done. He told her no. Now, at first I thought he was joking, but the entire time that we were there, he never did it, you know? And I remember when she kind of sucked her teeth and rolled her eyes and went back upstairs, you know, he made a comment that like, does she think I'm like her wife or something like that? And I was flabbergasted. Now, again, to be clear, I don't know if he was joking or not because, you know, it, it was a room full of guys, but it still dawned on me just how ingrained these ideals are into the fabric of who we are. You know what I mean? This is your wife now. This is not some girl who you're dating, who you just met. This is this is your wife, you know? And she asked you to just throw her stuff into the washing machine and just, just help her out. I, mean, I don't know what she was doing upstairs, but... To me, it seemed like a very trivial task to say no to, you know? But like I said, the entire time that we were there, he never did it. So I don't know what changed once we left. He probably did. I don't know. I can't speak on that. But it dawned on me just how ingrained these ideals of who does what between the relationship between the sexes is just so in our community. I remember growing up as a kid and while working on this project, I did a lot of reflecting. I asked a lot of questions to different people, polls and stuff like that, um, couples. And you'll be surprised at the answers that, you know, even in today's era that you hear, they prefer their man to make more money than them. They prefer all these traditional ideals. Let's just say a woman is a doctor. You know, they make a lot of money. If you meet a guy who makes less than you, is he not good enough? Is he not worth it? Or flip it, if you're a guy and you meet a woman who makes more than you, does her making more money than you, does that make you feel emasculated? So those were the questions I really started to ask myself. What is the definition of an alpha? Is it a monetary thing or is it a character thing? Does you being a man, is is that in how you act how you handle situations, or is it the amount of money that that you bring in? Because honestly, Court, I know a lot of guys who make a lot of money, they're they're really successful, but they're terrible (laughs) people, you know? So it really forced you to look at the dynamics of what we classify as what is the roles and why
1: it's so interesting because even you just telling that story about your friend's house and the laundry right like I'm listening to it and I'm like you like yeah why wouldn't he just do the laundry but I'm also as you were telling me and I don't know what this says about me but I was like why would she ask him in front of his friends almost like of course he wouldn't want his friends to know that he does that of course he should do it right and of course she should feel free to ask him but like why would she do that in front of company? You know, like just call him upstairs or like send him a text or right. something. So like, what does it say about me that I think that he should be, you know, embarrassed about that? Like, oh my God, what a caveman right. I am. But that is what I thought. I was like, well, bitch, you could have asked him that privately. <laughs> like, I to... but I'm married. My husband does so much. My husband is a fantastic provider, but he's also a fantastic partner in this life that we built that does take work, whether that's like training chores or administrative stuff or the kids or picking people up or making lunches like he does anything that he needs to do as a team member but it's funny because I do remember really having a little like identity crisis after I had Avery Rose and I was quickly pregnant with AJ right after that but it was like I had a job do I go back to it or do I pay someone to watch my kid so I could go to work like we can afford for me to stop working isn't that what I should do because I can like I have the privilege of doing that so shouldn't I want to be the most present mother and most attentive wife and we did that for a little bit and I will say among other things among other reasons that I am you're talking to all of these lovely people instead of still doing that is that that didn't work for us. But one real thing was the money. I felt like raising the kids and keeping the house from burning down is my job and working and earning a check is his job. And we agree on that. Mm -hmm. And I still felt like I was asking him for money for stuff or when I would buy stuff, like anything, it felt like him buying it for me. Like I felt like a loss of power, right. like agents, mm-hmm. you know? Right? Even though we agreed on right. it. And even though raising kids 24 seven is still the hardest job I ever had. You know, like moms should earn a bazillion dollars I
0: agree. for what I they agree. do, I agree. but
1: still knowing that and feeling that way. I still felt like I had lost something in the relationship. And again, I'm like, how brainwashed am I? Isn't that kind of like an old school, non-feminist way of looking at things and who would have known that I felt that way until I was in it. But it's not so cut and dry as like, I'm a feminist and so here's how I feel.
0: And that's the thing I really stress is that, you know, with this project, I'm not looking to answer the world's problems. Obviously, every relationship is different. What works for one might not work for the other. But with that being mm-hmm. said, it does throw into question what is okay in each relationship. And to your point, why are our ideals so the way that they are?
1: Mm-hmm. Aggressive, And then you're like, oh my God, like, it's weird. Yeah,
0: exactly. And, you know, it's just really how I think we are raised from when we're young. You know what I mean? Little things like little Johnny, go put the trash out with your dad. Or, you know, Amy, come help me cook. Like I have a sister. I remember hearing her say, I don't feel like cooking. Or like, I don't want to, well, I got to cook. You know, my <laughs> mom was adamant yeah. at saying, because one day you're going to need these skills. Now, let me say this to you, Corey. I am not married. Okay. And I live by myself. I wish my mother would have spent a little more time with me in the kitchen because I, I'm telling oh, you yeah. it's I'm not the best cook I am not I'm not and I'm not afraid to say it you know and I'll be very transparent when I say I wish I had better cooking skills
1: I will teach you because that's annoying and that's annoying for whoever you date that does cook for you, like, you will never cook for them. I mean, I have have other skill sets. (laughs) I mean, but yes, to that
0: point, I wish I had better skill in the kitchen and stuff like that.
1: Talk to me about this movie. Like, I mean, God, talk about, first off, what does it mean to be an HBO-sponsored film?
0: So it basically means HBO read the script, they believed in the project, and it's not as easy as it sounds. We had multiple meetings. I created a pitch deck. Myself, my director, my co-producers, we created a pitch deck, basically marketing and selling the film, what our ideals were to how we were, because it's one thing, as you know, having a script and execution are two different things. You could have two, three, four filmmakers here and you can present them all with the same exact script. And it will, I promise you, the end product will be different for all of them. In tone, in theme. So we really pitched this piece As an equality piece, which essentially it is because, you know, Vanessa is a successful attorney in the relationship. She's she's the breadwinner. She's the one who brings home the bacon. And Harrison, God, Harrison, he is he's good at what he does. But in the society that we live in, it makes him feel like what he does is a problem. And I think using those narratives, looking at the project with those angles, it really caught their attention. Dennis Williams, Axel, they caught the wind of the project and they really got behind it. And the reason why I believe, and I'm this is not a hundred percent certain, but I believe why it wasn't an HBO actual project is because it's a short, you know what I mean? It, it is a short and I think they wanted to still endorse and sponsor the project so they donated towards the funding of us creating this film. And I think one of the best things that you can get in life is endorsements. And not endorsements in like financial gains, but endorsements like, I'm putting my stamp on this, on, on this project because it is that good. You know what I mean? And, and once HBO endorsed this project, and sponsored it. As you can imagine, court, Film Independent jumped on board, Equality Now Foundation jumped on board, White Ribbon Foundation jumped on board. We were even able to get sponsorships from brands like Miss Jesse's, NYX Cosmetics. NYX Cosmetics and Miss Jesse's are both headed by female CEO. So this message for them really that's resonated. Cool. And that's really what having HBO attached to the project did for our film.
1: Does it mean though that a lot of people don't understand how films, how projects, how filmmakers kind of do all of this, right? Before they're famous, before we know them, before you're seeing them right, right. on HBO proper. And Tribeca Film Festival is coming up. ABFF is going to happen closer to the end of the year. Yeah, You just wrapped up, I think, were you at Toronto? Is that where you we were? We
0: were at Toronto. We were at Sundance. We were at Garden State. We literally, actually this past weekend, we screened at um, the Las Vegas Film Festival this past weekend that just completed.
1: So tell people like what that actually means. Like what happens at a film festival? You, you are a filmmaker, you have a project and you want to screen it, which screening it means it's showing there in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. And you want to hopefully what? Sell it, get it distributed. What's the goal?
0: There's really three goals in film festivals. The first immediate goal is exposure. That's the first immediate goal. You know, um, you want people to see your project, you want whether it's a feature, it's a documentary, it's a short, you know, a web series, you want people to get eyes on it, that's number one. Number two, you want to get distribution or you want to garner enough buzz for your next project. And for me, for A for Alpha, my goal, I can say this, I'm using A for Alpha to build enough, you know, accolades. You know, we we just won at Garden State and we you know this is our sixth film festival. So build enough accolades, build enough recognition so I can propel to do my feature. So that's why I did A for Alpha personally. But every filmmaker has a different reason why they do their film, why they submit to festivals. Because at the end of the day, film festivals aren't the only way to release a film. How often do we see smaller budget projects get like, you know, smaller distribution? Like it goes straight to DVD or things of that nature. So there's different avenues. But for me, I wanted to do the film festival route because I really wanted to maximize the film community's exposure. It's one thing to have distribution and it's another thing to have your film win an award at a film festival because the powers that be, again, making relationships with people at HBO Warner Media, that's such a valuable asset to have because you automatically they know who you are now. Yeah, like I have these people in my Rolodex. So when it comes time for me to do my feature, they may even come up to me and say, Hey, Reggie, like look, this project's doing great. What else do you have? You know, let's discuss. Every filmmaker should have their own reasoning behind doing their project. But for me personally, doing A for Alpha, it was A, exposure, B, garnering recognition and collecting lots of accolades so that when I go back to do this feature, this first major feature that I'm I'm working on, you know, people know who I am. They know what I'm capable of. You know, Mm -hmm. they, they, they know that, given the right team, you know, the right people behind me, this this project can take off. Yeah. So, and film festivals, to your point that you said earlier, the beauty of film festivals is that nine times out of 10, a lot of the people who you're gonna work with in the future, you meet at these film festivals. Myself, I'm a writer, producer, actor, but I met the director of my film at Bronze Lens a few years ago. And three years later, we have a project out together. You know what I mean? I met you at ABFF two, three years later, look at us. We're sitting down having a conversation now. So usually the networking is so valuable, you know, and I think people too often don't use networking the way they're supposed to, because everyone, we're all humans. We're all going through stuff. So if you meet someone and you go to them, you're like, what can you do for me? Nine times out of 10, they're probably not going to want to help you or, associate themselves with you because we're all going through stuff. Ask the person how they're doing first, you know, find out what's going on with them. We're in a pandemic year. How did you hold up? Doing proper networking, building those relationships. Because again, this business is a business of relationships, you know? So I think going to these film festivals and making the right relationships, meeting the right people, you know, leaving the right impression on people is a huge, huge importance of these festivals. And then asking yourself, Why am I here? Why am I doing this? What do I want to get out of this? Is it distribution? Is it award recognition? You know, because look at your project and see what the landscape looks like and. Be honest and real with yourselves. So I think that is what every filmmaker uses film festivals for. If not, they should be.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a smart strategy. So HBO sponsoring this film, all of those conversations, all of those kind of partners you were able to take on to help finance this, this is all before you ever shoot anything?
0: Yeah. So I did not do what they would normally call a test to present. I, I didn't do any of that. I think based off the merit, at least for me, it's, this is this is not for every single person, but for this project, we were really solid with the script, with the pitch deck and the team that we had presented. So they really believed in the project and they thought that we could move forward with just that. But again, the script was solid. You know what I mean? Yeah. They read the script before they even saw the pitch deck. And they were like, oh, yes, this is okay. I want to know more, you know? So I guess what I'm trying to say to other filmmakers who will listen to this is make sure that the script that you're presenting is so concise. It's so compact that you force people to look at you. You know what I mean? Like, don't send in, don't submit your first or your second draft. (laughs) Please don't. You know what I mean? And I think once you have that, it opens up doors for you.
1: So how does a project like this specifically, you know, like what are the benchmarks and how does it get to a place where it makes any money, if that's even a thing, right? But of course it's get it made, right? Like get it financed, get it, get a budget to make this thing right, and then do it. And at least for this project, the journey has been get it into festivals, mm-hmm and try and win something. And then now you've won something, right? So it's like endorsed, you're talking to me, we're talking to the public about it. So now there's some publicity happening. You know, it was paid for and kind of co-signed by a huge brand like HBO. People probably are talking to you about your next projects based off of the merit of this one. But is there any other kind of finish line where this now becomes also like an equitable thing for you at this stage in the game
0: yeah so as you know hbo has the hbo short so short films can live on different platforms like netflix like stars like hbo like hulu they every single platform these days or hbo max they they allow for a category in their library where a film can live so if you win at a festival like ABFF, you know, where they have the short competition, the short step screen there gets to actually live on HBO's network. So yeah. there is the room and the opportunity for equitable gain. And I'll be very transparent with you, Court. Yes, we are looking at all of those avenues. Yes, we're, we're looking to win at ABFF, you know, <laughs> knock on wood, you know, um, we're looking to screen at all the major festivals that can potentially garner those types of distribution. So yes, for people who are watching this, there is a life after festivals for short films. Obviously not every short film will get distribution, but if your short film is that good, it absolutely can. And then of course, you know, the Oscars just passed on Sunday and there's Academy Awards for short films. So absolutely there is a life after festivals for shorts. And we're definitely looking at all those avenues.
1: So cool. Reggie, thank you so much for opening up to us about your journey, not only professionally, but personally, and giving us some insight into what this whole festival circuit is about. There are so many coming up. Your project is already killing it at the ones that you've been to. And so I'm so excited to see what it's like when everyone else gets to see it. Is there a place that listeners can see your work right now?
0: We're currently still on the festival circuit. Beauty of the festival this term is that I think festivals are moving towards a hybrid style now these days. All of our earlier festivals were all virtual, but with the introduction of the vaccines and stuff like that, I think they're moving to hybrid. So the next one that we get into, I always post the link. They can watch it, stream it online. And uh, yeah, just... Continue to follow me, I guess. I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram. It's um, at Reggie Low 24. The Twitter and my Facebook is just my name, Reggie Lochard. Continue to follow the films page. And the films movie page is A for Alpha Film on both Facebook and Instagram.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: So I told you that this month I would be providing some resources for people who want to take some steps to take care of themselves. One organization that I definitely think is worth checking out, Taraji P. Henson launched the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation in honor of her father. They're doing something that I think is really great. This year, they launched the free virtual therapy support campaign. What they're doing is offering up to five individual therapy sessions for free. I think they've had like three rounds of 1,500 people and they're gearing up to do it again. So if you want more information about that, text NO STIGMA to 707070 or, you know, head to Google, check out the Boris Henson Foundation. If you need immediate help, please call the National Suicide Helpline at one 800 2738255 as reggie pointed out in our conversation some people it's a cultural thing you know your family never talked about therapy never condoned it think it's for white people think it's for rich people it's not like therapy is so useful for everyone you know it's exercise it is exercise for your mind and there is no shame in it so do whatever you need to do to get okay with asking for help Thank you for listening to Acting Up. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. Follow us on Instagram at actingup.pod. Acting Up is brought to you by The Grio and Executive, produced by Courtney Wills and produced by Cameron Blackwell.